That's the call to order. Is the taping already? It is, okay. God bless you. Welcome back. I say that to myself as well because last week we were at a special wedding. A wedding, yes. The youngest two among us got married last week. Praise the Lord. It was a great event. And uh, welcome for those of you that haven't been here in a while. Uh, I'm excited about what I sense the Lord wants to do among us by his spirit through his word. But before I share, I want to ask uh, Dale to come up and uh, give a little real short summary of how it went when in their trip last week to Mississippi for the trial of the young man who murdered their son. So, Dale, yeah, please. Yeah, and that happened four years ago today at uh, 7.30 this morning in uh, Mississippi, which is where we had to go for the trial, and it lasted all of Hughes to plead day. Uh, he confessed at the beginning but refused to plead guilty, and unless they plead guilty, you've got to go through the whole process. And so uh, he spent the next four years trying to get the confession thrown out. So anyway, that was played in court, and the, uh, the jury was in deliberation for about an hour. And they had, they had uh, one, two, well, two choices. They could convict him of capital murder, and uh, that's life without parole in Mississippi. Or they could uh, set him free. Uh, you know, we did that intentionally. Uh, there's a lot of other ways it could have been presented, but it wasn't complicated, and so we just wanted to make it that way. So they came back with a, a guilty verdict, and um, immediately after that, they then presented, the prosecution presented the evidence that he uh, was a habitual offender. Most states have that uh, law, and so if, he, if you've been convicted of uh, three previous felonies, and then you commit another one, you're deemed to be a habitual offender. And in Mississippi, that also carries a mandatory life sentence without benefit of parole. So he's got two of those. And so, uh, you know, unless something extraordinary happens, he'll spend the rest of his prison, rest of his life in prison. But um, many of you have been praying that he would plead guilty. He didn't do that. And it, in a strange way, uh, made it, easier to sit through that and not feel like uh, we were doing something that was uh, harsh. I know that may sound odd, but uh, I'm convinced that uh, God is going to do something with his life, and I'd ask you to continue to pray that God will redeem that life, because the worst thing that can happen is that he would spend the rest of his life in prison and be the same person at the end of that life that he is now. So his name is Josh Fletcher. If you want to pray for him by name. And uh, I've already talked with the chaplain's office at the state penitentiary in Mississippi and talked to a, uh, a chaplain. He's going to visit with him as soon as he gets there. So anyway, uh, I just wanted to kind of give you an update. There's a whole lot more that happened than that, I can assure you. Uh, and God was good, is good, and will continue to be good because that's who God is, and it's immutable. He cannot change. All right? So, there you go.
Dale had shared with me previously and just reminded me of again. Uh, when Josh was first arrested uh, for the murder, uh, he had had an encounter with God, so much so that he confessed not only to, to the murder, but gave all kinds of details that no one could have known except the murderer. But God had just reached down and rescued him, and he wanted to have his soul be made free. And he wanted to bring everything into the light and confessed everything. So they, they had that on video. And when that video was played, it was very convincing. And our prayer should be that, that Josh Fletcher would come to his senses and rather than believe the lie to lie in a cover-up, he'd embrace the truth because the truth is the only thing that can set us free and make us free. So let's pray. Lord, we would just want to pray a prayer of agreement for Josh Fletcher right now. Lord, there was a time when his heart was so touched by God that he came to the light and was honest and confessed. Lord, confession is made unto salvation. It's the pathway toward freedom. And we pray that this young man, oh God, would have such an encounter with the living God again. Lord, you visited Jonah a second time. We pray a second time visitation for Joshua, that he would be set ablaze and that you could use him in the prison system in Mississippi in a dramatic way. And Lord, we're just thankful for uh, our family, Dale and Beth. And Lord, thank you that, that they are strong in the Lord. Thank you that even though last week they had to hear everything all over again, and they've had four years to pray and to receive your comfort and healing. Lord, it all came back to the surface again. Almighty God, heal, we pray. Restore. Lord Beth, as she's in California with their youngest daughter, Lord, that you could flow through Beth to her daughter Sarah in a dramatic way that Sarah's heart could be calmed and set free. Thank you for Dale. Thank you for Beth. Thank you for what you're doing in their lives. And thank you that vindication and justice is mine, says the Lord. Thank you that you're a great God, and we love you with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength tonight. Amen. Amen. One more quick thing. I, I, just to give you a, clear, a clearer picture, without the confession that he made four years ago, there would not have been a conviction. There was not enough evidence to substantiate a conviction on murder. There was corroborating evidence, but that's not enough. It required the confession in order for the conviction to occur because he wouldn't plead guilty. And so um, I, I think God did something. And whatever it was, I don't know if it was salvation or what happened, but God uh, required him to confess. And so um, that's what happened. And um, I, I'm just, and again, there's so many things that, uh, we don't have time to tell you right now. It could make a book. And I just saw God work in incredible ways 
from the time that we rolled in there Saturday night until we left Saturday morning the next week. It's unbelievable, the, the things that I saw God do. And we see God do things every day, but we're not looking. I was looking. I was looking. I was looking. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord. All right, please open your Bibles to Matthew chapter 5. Now, in this particular season, uh, we are not having the discipline of Bible memorization as we have had in times past as we've gone through the Sermon on the Mount with various different groups in various different nations. So there's been great grace upon all of us. But, and I think we did better in the Beatitudes than we have in this second half of Matthew chapter 5. But two verses I want us to look at that was part of our message of one flesh that we're looking at tonight. Furthermore, it has been said, the words of Jesus, whoever divorces his wife, let him give her a certificate of divorce. But I say to you that whoever divorces his wife for any reason except sexual immorality causes her to commit adultery. And whoever marries a woman who is divorced commits adultery. Let's pray. Lord, we need you tonight. Lord, as I've shared often in this series, this long message, the first message that you gave to your first disciples... Multitudes were gathered at the bottom of the mountain, but you went up to the top, and a few of the disciples followed you, and after you sat down, you began to open your mouth and reveal the foundation of the kingdom of God. That's what the Sermon on the Mount is. It's the foundation of the kingdom, the rule, the reign of God in a human life. And Lord, we're just so grateful that chapter 5 focuses on character, the character of the kingdom lived in a life here on earth. In chapter 6 and 7, in this fall and next year, Lord, we'll be looking at the conduct of the kingdom. How do we walk out in practical living what God works in through godly character? So tonight, Lord, I pray that we'd have ears to hear what the Holy Spirit is wanting to speak, what you're wanting to reveal to our hearts concerning this holy covenant of marriage. And Lord, as I sound the shofar again, Lord, I pray that there be an open window, an open door over our gathering right now so that we could recognize the voice of God even through the voice of a man. So speak now, Lord. Your bond servants are listening.
Thank you for your presence among us, Lord. We are eternally grateful. Amen. Marriage is sacred to God. It means so much to him that the Bible begins and ends with a marriage. It's the beginning and the end of the Bible. God planned marriage for both of his natural sons, Adam, the son of God, and Jesus, the son of God. For Adam, it was a natural marriage to a woman called Eve. For Jesus, it's going to be a spiritual marriage to a bride that will emerge. And the subject of marriage is more relevant for some than for others. But it is important that we all know what the Word of God says about it. We need the Lord's perspective on marriage. He created and established the sacred covenant between a man and a woman. Homosexual marriage or any other deviant from one man or one and one woman is outside of God's plan and blessing. So it could very well bring a curse upon those who participate in it. Friends, our culture does not dictate what is really right or wrong. The Word of God does. The Word of God is absolute truth. And I spoke to this two Sundays ago right here in this chapel in the regroup um, ABF gathering. The significance of absolute truth in a culture that is all relative. God's word is absolute truth. It's perfect truth. And in the time of Jesus, the rabbinical school of Hillel, many things throughout Israel are named Hillel. We, in fact, we had a street in Jerusalem. There's a street in virtually every city, every town in Israel called Hillel because the, the school of Hillel, a famous rabbi, was where the entire doctrine and theology about Jewish interpretation concerning divorce originated. It dominated it. It gave the husband most of the rights and responsibilities regarding the option of divorce. Women had virtually no say-so in it. And the Pharisees interpreted Moses' teaching to mean that a man could divorce his wife for any reason. Although he was required to repay the wife's dowry if he did divorce her. Other than the reason for adultery. Jesus countered this interpretation that victimized women and restricted divorce to the grounds only of sexual immorality. In Deuteronomy 22, we see that if, if rape the horror of rape, if rape preceded the marriage, preceded the marriage, or if a man falsely accused his wife of immorality, falsely, divorce was not allowed. Although divorce and remarriage were not encouraged, 
they also were not denied under the law. It was assumed that remarriage would always follow divorce. And this issue of divorce was raised a few times to Jesus, indicating that there was a lot of debate about that subject in his days. And most of the debates were over the grounds for which a man could file for divorce or give her the writ of divorce or certificate of divorce. Some said that marital unfaithfulness was enough cause. Others said adultery was so severe it would be only punished by stoning, not just by a simple divorce. So this issue was debated fiercely in Jesus' day because the Jews understood that God, through Moses, had given the covenant of the law to his people. And they knew it was their duty to keep God's commandments. They knew this. But by the first century, most Jews, were, most Jews were sure that their hope of salvation depended upon keeping God's laws as faithfully as possible. One who kept the law was considered a righteous person and would be able to enter the kingdom of God. So every law was important, every one. And every legal question was hotly debated. In Matthew 5, 21, Jesus introduced us to a series of, you have heard that it was said of old. A series of these statements in Matthew chapter 5. And in each one, what did Jesus do? He quoted the Mosaic law. And then he pointed to the ideal. And these sayings show that although the law deals with outward behavior, God is primarily interested in the state of our hearts. That's what he's looking at. The law is not the highest moral standard. It is a reduced standard because love is the high standard. It's the highest standard. And Jesus was stressing the sacredness of marriage, saying that it is a binding covenant and should not be broken lightly. I want you all to turn in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 19. Here's another one of those situations where Jesus was asked about divorce. Again, it was a commonly debated subject. Matthew chapter 19, I want to read this whole passage that he has with the Pharisees that came to him, starting in verse 3. Matthew 19, 3 through 10. So the Pharisees also came to him, testing him, and saying to him, Is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for just any reason? And Jesus answered and said to them, Have you not read that he who made them at the beginning made them male and female, and said, for this reason a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. Right there is where we got the title for this message on this subject. Right there. 
So then they are no longer two, but they are one flesh. Therefore, what God has joined together, let not man separate. Then they said to him, well, why then did Moses command to give a certificate of divorce and to put her away? And he said to them, Moses, because of the hardness of your hearts, permitted you to divorce your wives. But from the beginning, it was not so. And I say to you, whoever divorces his wife except for sexual immorality and marries another commits adultery. And whoever marries her who is divorced commits adultery. His disciples then said to him, if such is the case of the man with his wife, it is better not to marry. The first century Israelis, they knew that they could not commit adultery. That was totally against God's law stated in the commandments. So when they got tired of their wives, you know what they did instead of committing adultery, they just wrote a bill certificate of divorce and then sent them away. How convenient. Jesus said God did not intend marriage to be disposable at all. He intended it for a lifetime commitment that communicates to the universe. Marriage communicates to the universe. His unending love for his bride in the church. He said in verse 6, what God has joined, let not man separate. What Jesus was saying was that God has ordained the marriage relationship. He's ordained it. And once it is entered into, mere men are not competent to break it apart. But in the first century, scribal courts were being, they were making pronouncements on when it was valid to divorce and when it was not valid. So mere men were making judgments on a covenant that God had ordained. The Pharisees and the scribes were deciding for others when a marriage could be dissolved. But God has not made men judges over other men concerning marriages. And I will also include women. He's not allowed men or women to be judges over other people and their own marriages. Marital intimacy and the possible difficulties of the relationship are not open to the judgment of others, says the Lord. In the Old Testament, no court of elders or priests was involved when a divorce took place. Isn't that interesting? No court of elders or priests were involved when a divorce took place. It was up to the husband and the wife to determine if the marriage was over. If they divorced, the husband was to give the wife a written bill of divorce and returning her dowry to her. 
But the point that Jesus was making was not that a husband and a wife are unable to divorce, but that no ecclesiastical court has any business saying you can or you cannot. This is the heart of what he was going after. If a couple feels their marriage is destructive and that divorce is a better option for them, then their future is their decision and responsibility. They are to seek God's will, knowing that divorce is the last option to be considered and that his grace is sufficient even in difficult marriages. Choosing to forgive and to live in love is far more preferable than severing a holy covenantal union. But if the couple does insist on divorce, that choice is theirs. It's theirs. Now I want you all to turn with me to Malachi chapter 2. Pastor John preached on Malachi a couple of weeks ago, and it, it was so powerful. I thought it was interesting as you're turning to Malachi chapter 2. I had never known this fact about Malachi, that 85% of the words in Malachi are the words of God. And it is the most God-quoted book in the entire Bible, looking at the percentage of how many verses there are as to how many did God speak. Number one in the Bible. Interesting that he brought out the thing. Here God spoke so clearly through this prophet, and there was 400 years of silence until John the Baptist came on the scene. Malachi chapter 2, starting in verse uh, 11. And an abomination has been committed in Israel and in Jerusalem. For Judah has profaned the Lord's holy institution, which he loves. And he has married the daughter of a foreign god. May the Lord cut off from the tents of Jacob the man who does this, being awake and aware, yet who brings an offering to the Lord of hosts. And this is the second thing you do. You cover the altar of the Lord with tears, with weeping and crying. So he does not regard the offering anymore, nor receive it with goodwill from your hands. Yet you say, for what reason? Because the Lord has been witness between you and the wife of your youth, with whom you have dealt treacherously. Yet she is your companion and your wife by covenant. But he did not, but did he not make them one, having a remnant of the Spirit? And why one? He seeks godly offspring. Therefore, take heed to your spirit, and let none deal treacherously with the wife of his youth. For the Lord God of Israel says, that he hates divorce. For it covers one's garment with violence, says the Lord of hosts. Therefore, take heed to your spirit that you do not deal treacherously. Wow. 
God hates divorce. I think we take too lightly what God hates. He does not want anyone to go through the agony. He doesn't want anyone to go through the rejection and the heartbreak and the disappointment and the guilt and shame. His goal in giving marriage to us was to strengthen us, not to tear us down. It was to create a supportive union, not a destructive isolation. So God, who loves us deeply, he hates divorce for our sakes. That's why he hates it. We must also realize that at times there can be greater hurt and greater damage to spouses and children by keeping the marriage together than by divorcing, such as in the case of severe abuse. God's ideal, his ideal, is for spouses to be faithful to one another and to their covenant before him. He hates the selfish and hard-hearted attitudes that destroy this sacred covenant. Recognizing God's design of marriage and his transcendent purpose for a man and a woman to join their lives forever helps all of us to honor our commitment even when it is difficult. Marriage demands toughness and tenderness and maturity which are all based in commitment. Commitment is the essence of marriage. That's why just living together can become so destructive emotionally because the foundation of trust and lasting commitment are not present. Every marriage will contain disappointment and hurt. Everyone. Hopefully forgiveness and reconciliation will follow. And love and commitment will deepen. Becoming one flesh means that two lives are bound together physically, emotionally, and intellectually. They share their values and their thoughts and dreams. And they share their life decisions. Through sharing all that they are, they become one. And they work at being one, hear this, the rest of their lives. Janet and I have been 33 years at this. Next month, we celebrate 33. And we're still working on oneness. It's a lifetime journey. Every marriage is as different as the two people involved. No one should compare their marriage with those of others because some marriages are very romantic. Others are very compatible. Some have great teamwork. And others produce wonderful children. This is the time to say thank you, God, for mom and dad. Don't miss it. Thank them right now. Thank you, Lord, for mom and dad. Listen, if mom and dad weren't here, you wouldn't be here either. 
Praise the Lord. Wonderful children, God's design. But not all marriages have every good quality. And the Hollywood ideal of romance must always be tempered with realism. Hebrews 13.4 says, Marriage is honorable among all. And the bed undefiled. But fornicators and adulterers, God will judge. Marriage is to be respected and to be honored by everyone, by singles as well as those who are married. It is a holy and binding covenant. Marriage partners are to be faithful to each other and not covered another's spouse or flirt with another's mate. Single people need to treat the marriages of others as sacred. And for a believer, divorce will always, always be the last resort. It falls short of God's ideal and his glory. And for that reason, it is sin. But God's forgiveness, his forgiveness is available for those who fail in marriage just as it is available for those of us who fail in other areas of life. Divorce is not the unforgivable sin, although it does carry very painful consequences. So we all, Listen to me tonight. We all need to give grace liberally to those who have suffered the trauma of divorce. God is committed to work with us throughout our entire earthly lives with his redeeming grace in spite of our mistakes and our failures. The grace that brings us to salvation continues to operate after we are saved. Praise the Lord. I want to close with just a couple of comments for those of you who are not married. Bless the Lord. I could go on and preach a whole message right here. What a blessed state you're living in. You may think, as many do, that you cannot really be fulfilled until you marry. That is totally untrue. I heard one amen. That is totally untrue. There we go, a few more. I'm starting to get through. I missed it by not bringing an apple, but I want you to imagine an apple that I'm holding in my hand. That apple is whole and sound. God made that apple with that apple in mind, not the other apples that are on the tree, just that one. And God enjoyed making that apple. And that apple is whole and sound and complete. It needs no other apple for its completion and fulfillment. 
And God made each and every one of us as a whole person. You do not need another whole person to find fulfillment. Because fulfillment is not in marriage. Fulfillment is in knowing Jesus. It's in knowing God. That's where fulfillment is. Marriage is not the key to happiness or to joy or to love. It's knowing God. Knowing Jesus who introduces us to the Father. Knowing Jesus who welcomes the Holy Spirit to penetrate the moment we believe and receive. So this is the key to all of these blessings is knowing God. And of course, the good news is that you can know Jesus in a completely fulfilling way while you are not married. And let me just give you a word of encouragement. Find the place of contentment. Paul says, I have learned the secret of contentment. Whether I have a lot or whether I have little. But he had also learned the secret of contentment in being not married. It is a secret and it is a tremendous gift. Because if we can find contentment right now in the state that we're in, and listen, you who are not married, if you do not find contentment when you are not married, you will not find contentment once you enter into marriage. Because contentment is a gift from God. And it's available to all of us. So don't be quick to look to trade in your gift of singleness. It is a gift. Just as marriage is a gift. So don't be like so many who don't even want to unwrap their gift. They're ready to trade it in. Ready to exchange it for another gift. No, open it up. See the beauty of it. See the wonder of it. I tell you, because the two of us had learned the secret of contentment when we were single, it's a whole lot easier to find contentment when you're married. So learn the secret. Ask God to open that door of contentment and to pour that into your life because only Jesus can satisfy you to the full. Let's pray. Lord, I just blow that unto you tonight that you would communicate to us. Lord, you, I pray that the seeds that have been sown tonight, Lord, I think of that parable of the sower and the seed. I pray that the seed that was sown among us tonight, Lord, that it would not find hard ground, that there would not be birds of the air to snatch it up immediately that it would not fall among thorns and be choked. 
Lord, I pray that the seed wouldn't immediately spring up and then when any type of trouble comes, it, it fades. I pray that by your Holy Spirit, you've plowed up the fallow ground around our hearts so that the seed that was planted tonight would be good seed that bears great fruit. And Lord, some of us maybe were not that ready to hear about marriage or divorce or remarriage. Or, but Lord, I believe that in Jesus' divine order of giving this great sermon, you know exactly when to bring about this whole concept of one flesh. And Lord, as this study has progressed, it was tonight was this assignment to look at one flesh. And Lord, I, I'm so well aware that seeds, seeds are almost always planted in darkness. It's the finger, it's finger of the sower, of the planter that, that pushes the seed into the soil. They're, they're planted in the darkness. There's not a lot of light underground. But the beauty of your working is that seed is always drawn to the light. So, Lord, I pray that you would water this seed. I pray it be drawn to the light. I pray that it would produce, first of all, a little shoot of genuine fruit for God. That it would sprout into an actual plant and even mature to a place of revelation knowledge of Jesus all throughout this journey of life. That should there be marriage or should there not be marriage, we could blossom into a wonderful tree of righteousness, the planting of the Lord. And that from each of our trees, there could be abundant fruit. Abundant fruit that anyone can come and pick and eat of God's goodness in our lives and through our lives. So, Lord, thank you. You are at work to do and to will of all your good pleasure concerning each of us. And I pray for a, a special time now as we uh, get into small groups that our sharing could be quality. And, Lord, I pray that you'd help us all to be to the point and not wordy but we could be able to share our heart and we'd have the compassion of each other as we listen. So, Lord, great grace, I pray, upon our times together so that we can all learn from you and each other by the Spirit of God that moves among us in a glorious corporate way. Thank you now, Lord, for this time of sharing. Be glorified and magnified for Jesus and in his name. Amen. Do you have something? Here. I guess I'll use it. Okay, so the girls that are in Beth's group, you're going to go with me tonight. And we are going to go in C1, that's the room across there with the big table. Those of you that are in Patty Blake's group, 
in Peggy Dwyer's group, you're going to go with Diane Young in C2. Did I say that backwards? Maybe that one's C1. Here's Diane. Anyway, it's the room there with the tables. You're going to go in there, the round tables. I'll take the younger ladies over here in that room. And those of you in the annex, if you find your groups are small and you want to combine with another group, feel free to do that. We're all family here, so that'll be okay. Does anyone have a question? Does everyone know who you're with? Okay, good. Well, may the Lord go with us all. Guide us into all truth. Bless you.